Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us on this episode of Nine to Thrive HR. I'm your host, Jenna Filipkowski, and today we're featuring the second podcast in partnership with Motivation Works. We're thrilled to welcome our guest today, Dr. Scott Rigby. He's an author, behavioral scientist, and founder CEO of Motivation Works and Immersive, companies that apply behavioral science to organizations, products, and services. Scott is a leading authority in predictive measurement of motivation and engagement and the application of proven interventions to improve organizational culture. Scott, so glad you're here. Thanks for being here. Great to be here, Jenna. And I know we've been working together for a while. We produced research earlier this year entitled Actionable Engagement Solutions. So everyone listening can check that out. In that research, we examined the role that managers and leaders and organizational systems and policies and employees have in improving the employee experience at work in order to make people feel more engaged. So I've obviously listed a bunch of people there and different systems, managers, leaders, policies, employees. Why is it important? Like, Why do we have to consider all of these perspectives and consider them when we're trying to increase engagement? Yeah, it's a great question. And of course, it's a lot, right? It's sort of an overwhelming to think about all these different things. But we can't change the reality that we also know, which is that culture is holistic. And when we're talking about really authentic engagement emerging, it's only going to come when we are considering all these perspectives and we're holistically approaching it throughout the organization. Everyone in the organization, um, the way sometimes we think about it, has both a a personal and an interpersonal role that, that they need to play. When I say personal in this regard, I don't mean everybody has their own job. Uh, I, I actually, as a behavioral scientist, I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that because engagement is fundamentally an emotional experience, um, everyone is, needs to be able to have experiences, whether they're an employee, a manager, a senior leader, that are um, letting that engagement emerge. And the nice part about it is that those personal experiences we know are, are actually uh, largely shared things. So, so one of the great pieces of news is that there's a helpful platform to getting to a holistic solution, which is recognizing that all of us are human beings. We all have basic fundamental needs that we want to be fulfilled in our work lives. Um, And once we understand what those are, then um, we can uh, go to the next step and say, now let's uh, look at each of our roles within the organization and figure out how do we work together in order to give ourselves those experiences and ultimately our customers those experiences, our clients those experiences. So this is why engagement is, as we know, so closely tied to performance and to business outcomes. So that really becomes uh, those shared experiences become the platform for um, then looking at our roles, leadership being able to communicate, uh, set up policies and procedures and uh, provide uh, vision and mission, uh, managers being in the trenches helping to actualize that, and of course, all, all the individual employees doing their roles, but everyone kind of coalescing holistically um, around this, this set of shared experiences that will um, just, again, let engagement naturally emerge. So obviously very complex to consider all those perspectives, the, the leaders, the systems, the employees, but extremely critical if you want to do it right. So I just want to briefly educate the audience a little bit. You mentioned the fundamental human needs. Can you share what those are? Yeah, I know that that's a great question. Um, and again, uh, this is one of those areas that when you're a behavioral scientist, a lot of times you uh, and you and I've talked about this before. 
Um, you take a little bit of umbrage at the fact that people think about psychology or they call it a soft science, right? Or behavioral. It's like, oh, that's one of the soft sciences. Because it sort of implies that, well, it's, it's a little fuzzy. It's not clear. It's, again, it's a little touchy-feely. Certainly, we can't really measure it. We can't be looking at it in the hard-nosed world of business. But as a social scientist, that's, I know that's not true. Like, this, is, this is the great thing about social science is that um, when it's done right, it's really focused on very clearly defining but also clearly measuring um, very discrete things in the psychological world, experience, and emotions of people, and then being able to use those definitions and those measurements to understand how things interrelate and how things are predictive of the outcomes we're seeking, outcomes such as engagement, outcomes such as performance. What we found um, through 50 years of research in uh, our model, which is called self-determination theory, uh, probably most of the listeners, uh, a lot of the listeners have, have heard of that because it's become really the dominant model worldwide for motivation and emotion and engagement. And what we found are no matter where we look, whether we look at young people or old people, or men or women, whether we look at Eastern countries or Western countries, there are universal psychological needs that we all share. And when those needs are supported, you see flourishing happen, you see engagement happen, you see performance happen. When they are thwarted, you see the opposite, you see negative outcomes. So these needs are where the action is, and just to go over them quickly, there are three. The first is the need we all have for competence, or sometimes we call it mastery. And that's the need we all have to feel successful, to feel effective in what we're doing, um, both moment to moment, day to day, year to year. Um, we want to feel effective. And, and the other dimension to that is that we want to feel a sense of growth. You know, we just don't want to be effective in the same job every day, you know, for the next 10 years. We want to know as we improve and are effective that we're able to grow in our skills, elaborate our skills, take on new challenges. And that's all coming from ourselves. The motivation for that is not something that you, as a manager or leader, have to put into your employees. We all have that. This is the great thing about all the needs I'm about to talk about is they're all intrinsic. They're all inside us already. We just need in the organizations and management and leadership to support them and kind of get out of their way and let them really flourish. So that's a need for competence and mastery. The second need is a need for autonomy. And in some ways, this is really the linchpin need in our particular model, because autonomy has to do with everyone feeling that they are the author of, of their lives, that they are the active agent in what they're doing, that they endorse what they're doing, that they're engaged, sometimes we say volitionally in what's, in what's happening in their lives, they're leaning into it, and that their true self is really um, endorsing what's happening, um, both in the activities and their relationships and their goals. And autonomy, most of the time, is, not, is misunderstood um, because most people, when I say the word autonomy and I ask for synonyms, they'll immediately say freedom or they'll say independence. Um, I, I didn't use any of those words when I just defined autonomy because even though having freedom and choice and those things is absolutely important and absolutely a way in order to let people feel like they are endorsing and creating their own path forward and what they're doing, um, it's not a necessary condition. We can flourish and feel autonomous in systems of structure, as long as we are on board, as long as there are rationales that we endorse. Um, we often, for example, make choices in our lives that uh, are giving away our freedom or independence, but are quite autonomous. We do this when we 
get married. When we have kids, we give up a lot of freedom, but we do it quite willingly because it reflects who we are. And the reason I bring that up is that um, this misunderstanding is incredibly important in organizational cultures because at work, you can't always give people choice. We have things we have to get done. Employees have jobs they have to do. We're all interdependent. We have structures. We have tasks. And so once we're able to really understand the need for autonomy, we can figure out how to support it even in circumstances of structure. And then the third need that I'll mention is the need for relatedness. Um, I want to matter to you. I want people to matter to me. I want us to be in a, a mutual support for one another and respect for one another. And what we find is it's not I need to do, you know, 18 team buildings a month or we need to have lots of social mixtures at work. It isn't that kind of connection. It's really that feeling of um, I, my opinion matters. Uh, the people around me, my coworkers, my managers are very supportive of my other needs. And uh, the reason I brought up related in this last is, um, I've already talked about autonomy and mastery, and what we're increasingly finding is, in particular, when managers and coworkers um, and the people in the organization are supporting those needs, relatedness naturally emerges because that's what respect looks like is when you support and fulfill my needs. So these three needs, uh, competence or mastery, autonomy and relatedness, um, I'm sure as I'm saying them, uh, there's nothing uh, super complex about them to the listeners. I'm sure as I talk about them, uh, because I've done this a lot, heads are nodding. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, it resonates. And it should because they are everyone's basic psychological needs. And so that's one of the powers of, of having this kind of a core model is it's able to be communicated and understood um, and adopted fairly easily in the organization. And then the challenge becomes how do we then put policies in action that really do support those things ongoingly? Exactly. And it is simple. It does sound intuitive, but there, like you said, there's decades of research to also back those concepts and ideas up. So that's the beauty. Of yeah, it, that's right. That's, yeah, yeah. I think that's a good point, by the way. That that you know, it's it's we're so awash, right, in so many different models. Everybody has a point of view. You've got tons of things out there where consulting groups will come up with an acronym for support these things or support these things. You'll have people that will actually collect data. And they'll say, we have, we've discovered 25 factors, 30 factors, 40 factors. Um, you know, the issue is that in most cases, most of the models out there, however well-intentioned, are really not backed up by the scientific data, <laughs> um, that these are the core things that matter. And what we tend to find is, um, I'll, and I'll just pick a simple example, and that is, uh, you know, you'll find something like communication out there or respect, or you'll see these things. And even I've, I've used some of those words even in, in my discussion of the needs. But what we find are the needs that I just talked about are really where the action is. That Those are the things that primary. Communication alone isn't enough. Mandating that, hey, communication is important. All managers must meet with their team members at least once a month for a one-on-one -on -one meeting to check in. That is not going to get the job done because it's not the meeting that matters. It's not communication that matters. It's what happens in that communication. This is related in this bill. Our support for autonomy and mastery there. Are we focused on the more fundamental things that are driving that stuff forward? And when you get to those fundamental needs, it actually simplifies the model but also makes it more powerful. I agree. And like you said, that all of 
the things that are out there that the consulting firms are pushing. And one of them is obviously engagement. Everyone wants more engaged employees. But through our research, and I know through your presentation that you gave it to our audience in July, not many people can define engagement and they're kind of just chasing something that's really ill-defined and ill-measured. Um, yet engagement surveys are so prevalent in our organizations today. Um, so to have that comment and also knowing that if you're measuring something poorly, but you're getting results back of something that's really not defined well, what does that mean and how can you actually use those tools? So if you put everything in that problem in context, when you get the results and feedback from these engagement surveys that are so prevalent, what should you do with them and who should use them? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, in your question, the first thing is you want to make sure that you're measuring the real things, the things that matter. You're measuring things that exist or clear or actionable, right? So getting the model right and the measurement system right is, is of course, important. And actually measuring a lot more than just the outcomes of engagement, but really having a model and understanding what's upstream and building engagement, such as the needs I just described, is actually the most important thing you can do. Um, that said, when you collect this information, uh, we think it's absolutely critical that everybody get data, information, and feedback um, from this process, from surveys, from these initiatives. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody, every single employee in the organization um, getting feedback and being included. This goes back to the first thing we talked about is, hey, if we're going to do this and we're going to be holistic, then we have to put our money where our mouth is. Um, if in most solutions out there that, that we see, and I, there are understandable reasons for this, uh, which hopefully we can talk about in a bit, um, they're not including the employee. Or if they're including the employee, it's done at a tertiary level in a way that communicates essentially in this process, your job is to respond to us and our job is to then get all the information and then figure out how from a top-down point of view, we're going to take action. Most employees hate this process, as we know. They hate the annual survey. They report that does nothing for them and they're not getting results from it. Most solutions out there don't give the employee anything back in anywhere near the way that leadership gets information or that managers get information. I mean, the reality is most frontline managers aren't even getting it, the information the way they need it. Um, so we, we get kind of choked off at the top. And, and that's a big problem. And the reason that's a problem is um, go back to what I talked about uh, in terms of our basic needs for relatedness or competence and for autonomy. If you're telling me, hey, we really want you to be engaged, we care about you. How many companies out there have a slogan, customer first or people first or, you know, I mean, it's almost a cliche. How are we really communicating that authentically to our employees? I'll tell you how we're not doing it. We're not doing it if we have a process where all they do is say things and it goes into a void and then all the information is kind of hoarded and not given back to them, either because we don't know how to do it. And, and again, this is, these are the reasons I think we don't know how to do it or we're actually afraid to do it because we're afraid, well, what will they do with their scores? Won't they feel evaluated? Won't they feel scared? So we're tiptoeing around including them, even though the entire initiative is called employee engagement. And that seems 
really paradoxical. That's something we absolutely need to solve. Yep, absolutely. And we, HCI recently completed a research survey on the performance management topic and what continuous feedback looks like or organizations. And we asked participants to talk about the challenges for feedback. And the number one was fear of changing the relationship, fear of hurting people's feelings. So just the fear alone mm-hmm. is stopping people from sharing information with each other and, and communicating for improved performance. So in terms of like the feedback piece and when you're sharing results of an, a survey or an engagement survey and giving people feedback from that survey, how do you do that in a way that doesn't feel judgmental so that it feels supportive and you could kind of alleviate those fears that I think are kind of naturally happen in adults when you may threaten their identity in that topic? That, of course, is the key question here. So a few things I'll say about that. The first thing is uh, it starts with really authentically embracing the idea that this process is not transactional. And when I say embracing the idea, I mean uh, the people, you know, people, HR leadership, senior leadership, managers. um, Certainly we all know that um, in our organizations, in our companies, we live in a capitalist society. We have goals. We have performance indicators. We have shareholders. We have stockholders, you know, we get it. The employees know this. We have jobs to do, and we're tracking numbers and financial performance or whatever our, our key business outcomes are. Okay, That's something that everyone knows. That said, employees currently feel like this is simply a process to help get more out of them, right? And unless we can authentically communicate to them and authentically feel that we care about their work-life experience, that we actually believe that by making their experiences stronger and better, their experience, and again, in our model, we have very concrete ways of talking about that, right? If they can feel that sense of competence and growth, if they can feel you know, more endorsement and autonomy in what they're doing, feel that sense of connection, everybody's going to win. They are going to love their jobs. Everyone, every employee wants to love their job. Every employee wants to perform well. They all want to do this. And so this gap that we have between most employees not being really engaged and the fact that all employees really want to be engaged is really one that we need to close by making this shift to not being afraid of the employees or not really respecting that they all want to be partnered with us in this process. Once we've embraced that, let that be the heart, the beating heart that begins to go forward to our organizations, to our employees, in terms of our communications to them. Let's communicate differently about what the employee engagement process is going to be. Why are we giving them the survey? Why should they care about this survey? If we authentically, again, I started with a really soul-searching and embracing this idea of supporting them, if we have that and we then put that into our communications, we can begin to break down this sense of suspicion that this is evaluative, right? And so we communicate that and they participate. The next piece is how do you then give feedback? Well, you need to make sure that once you've laid that authentic foundation and there's a perception that the feedback is to support them, You need to then make sure that you do things in the communication to um, not trigger that sense of evaluation, but communicate that it's supportive. One of the ways we talk about that is feedback should be informational, 
not evaluative. Informational feedback is feedback that whether I'm doing poorly or I'm doing well, no matter if my scores are high or low, wherever they are, that the feedback is shaped specifically to give me the information I need in order to grow, in order to um, improve, in order to, again, let's go back to that key need of competence or mastery. It teaches me something about myself that's empowering to me. What we see all the time is you can give people um, high or low scores, and it's how you give those scores and giving them informationally and not evaluatively that really matters, right? Of course, in, you know, in our systems and in motivation works, we have lots of systems to um, make sure that uh, people have appropriate anonymities and other things because the reality is you need to make people feel safe. Once you've done that, you know, focusing on informational versus evaluative feedback is really key. So I think overall, I could easily talk to for two hours on this topic and different strategies we use for this. But the important thing is that authentic communication, informational versus evaluative feedback, and then giving people actual practical, on-point, um, relevant uh, recommendations that can inspire them to take uh, personal action to have a better quality of life in the organization. That's another important piece. I agree. And I could talk about feedback for hours too. It's so fascinating that sometimes the terms we use like engagement, feedback, coaching get so conflated and we kind of lose meaning of what we're actually trying to say with those terms. So I think my intention and your intention too is just trying to get back to what are we really saying by these words that are used so often in organizations. So we gave feedback. Employees got their reports on the engagement survey they've just taken. They, They see that it's not transactional. They've gotten their feedback. But obviously, that's only meaningful if, if something happens and action takes place. So, and if you're you give individual actions with your tool, but you're an HR role and you're making a collective action, action at the organizational level, how can you mm-hmm. still make sure that the employee and their experience and their needs are at the center of those engagement initiatives from that survey? Yeah, I know. That's another great question. So again, we've talked about the fact it's important for everyone to get feedback, for everyone to be included. Um, But again, one of the ways in which the solutions that are currently out there and have been around for a lot of years, that that they fall down, is that they don't embody the kind of respect and support that I'm talking about. One of the very practical ways is most solutions are not terribly respectful of employees or even managers' time or capacity, right? So in, in various ways, uh, most solutions out there are, are just asking too much of employees and, and of managers, too, of frontline managers. Um, and this takes a couple of forms. In some cases, it's here are your numbers. Uh, go have some meetings and figure out what's going on, figure out what you have to do. So it's sort of Here's your numbers. Good luck to you. It's like if I went to the doctor and instead of, you know, this expert who I want help from, and instead of the doctor actually helping me, I, he just kind of gave me a printout of all my lab numbers and results and said, okay, good luck. You know, it's, it's not enough support. And so since it's not helpful, it makes people feel, you know, disengaged from the process. Another thing that, you know, solutions do is in some ways goes the opposite direction. It's it'll dump a, I've seen some solutions where if you stacked up all the materials it wants to give the managers, you know, it's like four inches on their desk. And so like, okay, work through this worksheet, that worksheet, here's a color-coded chart of, you know, literally thousands of different personality combinations and, you know, figure out what animal each of your employees are and build it to you. Like there's all these, 
you know, uh, various ways that these classification systems try to get built out. It takes so many different forms. And again, this kind of generalized approach, giving every manager a one size fits all, go figure it out um, with this information overload, uh, that's not going to be respectful of them either, right? This is engagement is a complex issue. It's a complex emotional response. It's complex in the sense that um, sometimes I say that it's the closest thing to love. Uh, you know, it's kind of like love, but in a work environment. And and we know that love is a very complex thing. It's very powerful. It's very, it, it, it has a, a passionate component to it. And it's the result of a lot of different things coming together. And so if we're to really try to support people, we can't expect that they're going to be experts in what to do and how to go forward. Um, I go back again to if you have a good model of the key experiences that are going to allow engagement and passion for one's work emerge, then you can actually get them excited by saying to them, hey, guess what? Here's what motivation engagement, here are the experiences that drive it. Here's what's happening for you. We all have these needs for, you know, again, going back to our model for competence mastery, for autonomy, for relatedness. Here's how you're feeling about those things in the workplace, right? Based on where your, you know, highs and lows are, here are some uh, recommendations that are specifically key. So in other words, you go the next step of saying, here are some recommendations that are specifically relevant to you based on this information about your experience, either as an employee or at the manager level. Here's the experiences of your team. Here are the highs and lows. Here are the proven, you know, almost recipes, right, where you can actually give them um, recommendations that they can uh, learn from and begin to follow to build out their action plans. Now what you've done is you've essentially uh, – given them a process where they can take an employee engagement survey. Um, they can get it done in a matter of minutes because we're all, we're asked, focusing on what really matters and they're getting back a customized report and that they can go through in 20 or 30 minutes with takeaways that are relevant to them. And if you can do this at, at the employee, the manager and employee manager level and leadership level, um, then, you've begun to do something that can truly close the gap that we currently have in these solutions. Yes, absolutely. And from our research that we did earlier this year, we saw that 81% of our HR survey respondents said that employee engagement, improving culture is a priority at the organization. Yet we saw also saw in that research that they're not feeling like they're doing a great job at that. Mm-hmm. So if we're making recommendations, we're taking actions at, you, like you said, the employee, manager, and organizational level, how do we know that we are closing that gap, that we are seeing improvement? Um, and how do you know that your, your investments and your time and resources are making a difference at these different levels? Yeah, great question. Yeah. Well, you know, as a behavioral scientist, we're, I'm just kind of a nerd, we're all nerds at, at my company about measurement, right, about data. Um, of exactly these things. So certainly we need to be, specifically organizations need to be measuring with a regular cadence. I personally am not of the mind that you need to be overly nagging your employees about things, but at least a few times a year, probably quarterly, checking in and looking at how needles are moving on these core employee experiences and fulfillments that are driving engagement. 
And what we found is that by doing it at that cadence, it's, it's enough time that you can actually give your initiatives a chance to take root and begin to have an impact on people's feelings and experiences, um, but not so long, for example, just doing it once a year, that you're not able to you know, catch and make course, uh, course corrections. Um, and so you need to be measuring things. But notice I focused, again, not on you need to measure engagement itself in all these places. Of course, that's a fine thing to do, but I often say that measuring engagement is really the easy part. Um, you, you can ask people one question like, I love my job, agree, disagree to a certain degree, and you've actually got a pretty good proxy measure of engagement. That's going to correlate positively with all of your business outcomes. But that's, of course, not the information you need to know. You need to, again, be upstream and looking at how are the experiences of things like competence and autonomy and relatedness, how are those things moving, um, are support for those things moving or support for the experiences that allow engagement to naturally emerge moving in the right direction. And so that, that's really the only way to do it. And measurement is critical because at the end of the day, none of us are perfect. When we implement something, even with good intentions, we don't really know how that's going to be perceived. We may implement something in order to provide a helpful structure to the organization or to the team. And the team might perceive it as controlling or thwarting of their autonomy. And we want to be able to check in on that and know that um, with a regular cadence so that, uh, again, we can make the course corrections that are necessary. Yes, absolutely. Um, Scott, been a pleasure. Thanks. I always learn so much from our conversations, but that's all we got time for today. So thank you very much. Oh, thanks very much. This is great fun. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast if you enjoyed today's episode. You can find HCI on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on the YouTube channel, HCI Talent. If you're listening on iTunes, we'd love to get your rating and review. It helps other professionals and like-minded people discover our program. For all of HCI, thanks for listening.